לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Partial Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet, from Highland Park, New Jersey, the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Chan. And joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Ashley Chesed in New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler. And now he's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but he usually is in the Solomon Schechter Day School of Long Island, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Send us, give us, give us just the, um, the lay of the land, what's going on out there. Well, I, I have to say it's a beautiful part of the country. A lot of farmland. Today, uh, Carol Galit and I went to the Amish farm and uh, community for a tour, which is fascinating in part because there are a lot of Hasidim and from Jews who come t- during Cholamoe to this part of the world because it's, I imagine it's relatively cheap. There are things to do for all ages. So the tour guide in the house was making a connection between the from Jews and the Amish and Mennonites and all the similarities that they have. So it's good to remember that we're not the only people in the world and not the only people that have wide ranges of behavior that characterize us as adherents of a religion. It's fascinating. Um, last year I was out to visit uh, you guys and, and, uh, had a, a nice ride on the Susquehanna. It was beautiful. Such a beautiful area of the country. Beautiful Pennsylvania. Hope to get there again. And how are things in New York City? <laughs> how are things in New York City? Festive? Uh, it's Pesach. Okay. We have, we're, we're, we're recording this on the, the, the eve of the eve of the last days of Pesach in the diaspora. We observe two days, uh, still, I guess, seventh and eighth day of Pesach. Um, and um, this puts us in a, a kind of a different frame. I think, um, you know, it's been it's been uh, a joy, joyous holiday for, for all of us. Of course, uh, in Israel, it's been quite complicated. The, the political situation within Israel is complicated. We've spoken about that in the past. And of course, there have been a number of... Um, uh, acts of terror and we are on a day that uh is uh, noting the passing of the third victim of the most recent terror uh the um the mother lucy lucy d and her two daughters maya and rena and so we are we are in a moment where we are um experiencing that grief the destruction of a family um we're also in a moment where we are thinking about the culmination of of Pesach and that takes us in our synagogue life to you know the commemorations that we find on that last day as we do on every last day of holiday uh, which is Yisker Um, and thinking about how to wrap our minds around that and and what Yisker means and I'll just start this off with with um, the 
you know, the 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 sense that the Yisker on Passover, um, as well as the Yisker on Shemini Atzeret, these are these are milestone markers of the year. You know, Shemini Atzeret comes at the beginning of the year. The eighth day of Passover, we're already, you know, well into the year. It's six months now. We're at the half point of the year. We're in the seventh month of the year. Um, so, you know, at both of these poles of the year, we, we, we're we reflecting. We also have a Yisker at Shavuot. I find the Yisker at Shavuot not as intense as both the Shemini Atzeret Yisker and the Passover Yisker, and of course, the Yisker on Yom Kippur. But... Um, each one of these yiskers does have a, a certain sense of, um, have, has a set of themes with it. And look, you know, here, Passover, beginning of spring, it's it's um, the sense that the, the festive time of the year is when we are longing for the people that are part of our lives that are not here in our lives. And that's always, that's always seems to be present. I always make this point that when we start the Seder, you know, you, you you look around at your table and we are blessed with with all of our loved ones. Now, of course, the, the last couple of years have been just awful in terms of family commemoration. Uh, and especially for those families who've lost loved ones during this time, it's been doubly, you know, compounded by this. But the Passover Seder table is a time when you, as a family, take note of who's here and who's not here. And it can be a very, very painful time. And that's what I think. I think though that 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 start of the festival kind of works its way through all the way to the end and needs expression by the time we get to the end of the festival. So we start with noting the absence and that works its way through. And then by the end of the the eight days for us, uh, that has to come to an expression, and that's that's what Yisker means to me sometimes. And of course, you know, we always have to focus on different themes for Yisker. But I, you know, as as we start this off, I'm thinking, yeah, that's 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 what's happening for me. I don't know, you know, Jeremy, if you have any reflections on, so on... very very moving. I mean, unlike the two of you, I have two living parents, and and I have. Uh, each of you has also lost siblings, and I, I happen so I, my, I'm personally in a different spot than the two of you are in my in the sort of arc of my own life. That said, I, I the, what you said is extremely resonant with me um, because Passover and the fall holidays, in their way, Shemini Atzeret is the you know something of the orphaned holiday, but the holidays, the memories are all going to be around the people that you shared them with, and so when people are absent. It's, it's just got a very, you know, the, the absence can be its own kind of presence in a, in a really big way. And so I think Yiskor is very expressive uh, of, of exactly that. Very. So as is my want, I would say two things. Um, the first one has to do with the idea that our Shalosh Regalim, but Pesach more than the other two, is a holiday that is intensely about national memory. It is, we remember that we were slaves in Egypt, but, you know, the truth of the matter is we were not slaves in Egypt. And even though we may eat assorted foods that suggest the experience, thank God most of us have never experienced anything like it. But Yisker, on the other hand, is about personal memory. 
we're not thinking so much about the people that we've lost historically. We're thinking about our own friends and family, and especially at Pesach and to a lesser degree at Sukkot, but also because of the image of the Sukkah and the table in the Sukkah, we're thinking about people around the fam around the table. And there seems to be a need that for our personal reflection to be part of our national story. That Yisker is part of making the national story our own story. And our national story is one of loss as well as hope. And we have to remember that. The other thing that I just say one other thing, which I think is important, is that we call it Yisker, which is he will remember, but we often forget that we're asking God to remember. That what Yisker is about is finding eternity in God, the eternal, who is to remember for eternity our loss, because we are not going to live forever. And we all know on one way or the other that one day someone is going to say Yisker for us as well. And what unites all the Yisker experiences is we have this belief in the God who will remember for eternity. So I hope people will say Yisker for us. You know, before we started recording, we talked about one other aspect of, uh, you know, the this this time. Um, and we talk about, you know, Pesach is a story with, with, with heroes and villains, right? And the Egyptians are the villains. And famously, and we're the heroes, of course, and and uh, God's the hero. Um, and famously, we also have a midrashic tradition of of anxiety at the suffering of the Egyptians. Like you know, the the Egyptians are drowning in the sea, and God, at least in some versions, the version of the, of this midrash that appears in the Babylonian Talmud, God says to the angels, not to the human beings. The human beings can rejoice when their enemies fall, but angels shouldn't. And it's a way we have as a, of a midrashic teaching of, uh, of, of, of awakening in ourselves human empathy, even for the people who are the most problematic, even the people who are, who are enslaving, you know, the, the, the enslaving Egyptians. Um, and so, you know, the Egyptians, when um, the plague of the firstborn happens, they're all wailing, and this is Ein Bait Asher Ein Shamet. There was no house in which there was not a death. There was a dead person. And that is a really poetic and powerful human story. There's in every house, in every family, there's always loss. And so I I feel like these core part, um, you know, one of the things that it could do poetically is awaken us that awareness that we look around. We're celebrating, and there's no house that doesn't also have loss. And so each of them come together, yin and yang, in the fullness of the human experience. It's, you know, I just want to pick up uh, again uh, what Barry said and kind of meld it with what you said just now, Jeremy, which is that, you know, the, 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 the personal family dimension and the, and the national dimension, and both of those are, are quite resonant in Passover. We've talked a lot in the past about you know, the Seder as a private family event. And, and of course, it's telling the national story, but but it's hard not to imagine that as you sit down, you know, and, and uh, at, at, at your table, you're also telling your family story. And, you know, part of what we do all the time at, at the Seder is think about Passovers in the past and remember Passovers in the past. And of course, we're telling the national story, but we're telling it very much in the, in the private personal vein. 
uh, of, of our own kind of unique micro culture of a family. Uh, similarly, you know, on top of what, what Jeremy just said, there is a national dimension to this particular zone of the year. Look, we're, we're, we're fin- finishing off uh, Pesach, and right after Pesach, you know, not even five days after Pesach, uh, we're going to have Yom HaShoah. In Israel, the Yom HaShoah uh, begins um, a 10-day period that, that has now been called Aseret Yemeh Hoda'ah. It starts with Yom HaShoah, ends with you know, Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaAzmut, and these are like the high holidays of Israel now. They're, they're moments of intense national narrative, both mourning and also celebration, um, and locating the individual within that that new modern Jewish history arc. And and I can't think that also of, of the last day of Pesach without thinking uh, you know, something that that by you know this time next week we are we are going to be deeply immersed in in Holocaust remembrance. Um, you know, our synagogues commemorate that with the Yellow Candle project and and other kinds of commemorations. We have um Various ceremonies. I know, Jeremy, in, in New York, you have the annual reading of names, uh, a vigil. All of your synagogues uh, basically have a you know collective uh, reading. And you want to talk about that for a second? Just and it rotates among synagogues, and this year it'll actually be in in our synagogue, uh, which is which is great because what happens is they start at 10 p.m. and each synagogue has a half an hour slot, and the host gets the first half an hour slot at 10.30, which is great because when you have the 3.30 or 4 o'clock slot, man, that is just awful. Yeah. It's just the worst. Because uh, you, you want to go and you feel like you should go, but it is really hard to go. So uh, this year we're, we're good. We're starting at 10 and our slot will be 10.30. And you have this sheet of names that the U.S. Holocaust Memorial in D.C. gives you, and some things are different places. Um, you know, there'll be it'll be you know people from Holland, or there'll be people from Greece, or there'll be people from you know this or that place in Poland, and it is just so unbelievable. You get these names, and they're you know it's like Moshe Bornstein, Zipporah Bornstein, Yehuda Bornstein. Yitzchak Bornstein, you read the whole family and it'll tell you the, the ages of each of the people and you can you can just see how the family um, was all was all wiped away. And you read, 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 read it all night long. And then in the next, in the morning, like at like 7 o'clock or whatever, they, they move it from whatever synagogue it was to the JCC where they continue on for the rest of the day. And the whole thing... Um, amounts to like you know maybe reading 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 and, and it's you know like ten thousand names or something like that um and not and even you, a rounding error not even a rounding error and just the the it drives home the 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 power you know the reality that six million is a big great big number but it's one by one by one by one by one by one by one and i try to when i when i'm reading i try to sort of you know make up little stories in my head or or try to you know try to summon so like whatever i get the name it's moshe bornstein he's eight years old and i try to to sum up or it's or it's sipora bornstein and she's a 62 year old grandmother whatever and you you just try to imagine one by one by one by one by one person and the enormity it really is a tremendously powerful 
yeah. illustration of just the incalculable Loss. human misery. I was, was going to say, you know, from time to time, I get uh, asked to to proof uh, a plaque, a memorial plaque, or a a stone, um, and it'll have a Yiddish name on it. And and Yiddish names are are very difficult to spell sometimes. So. Uh, I, I've discovered that a great resource is the Yad Vashem database because every name is there, every spelling of every every kind of spelling of every name. So I'll look up um, a name and I'll look up how it's spelled, and then of course, you know, it, it's hard not to just do the to go and to look at the testimony you, at the Yad Vashem uh, database. There's a page of testimony, and it will tell you. Where and when the person was killed, where they lived, etc. The, there's sometimes a picture of the person, and um, you, you know, like 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 all of us, we can get drawn into the story. And and I would say for people watching and people listening to us, that if uh, they wanted to find a way to have a meaningful um, commemoration on Yom Hashoah, indeed, you know, to attend the ceremony, and and it's going to become more and more important for. A next generation and the next generation to to find their own media for for commemoration, but um, stop a moment, look at a testimony, just you know, even Google something. Uh, I do this randomly from time to time when I need to kind of get grounded. I, I try and remember someone, and I um, from time to time I'll, I'll, I'll look up uh, someone I knew who was a survivor and telling their testimony. And or if some if you hear of someone who passed away, and I'll look up their testimony and look up their video, and um, and I want in a way to say, and and here is the message really, you know, to have that bound in the bond of life. We are the living, we are the living, and we are connecting the dead to the living. Let there be no breach between the dead and the living. Elie Wiesel used to say that all the time, and in in a way that that was very hard to understand. That there's a breach that, that in 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 our era there's been a great breach between the living and the dead. I never really understood that until I tried to think. You know, what does it mean? It means they they live with us in memory, of course, and and they're part of our lives. And and you know, telling their stories, going to the testimonies, looking at the documentaries, it can be very you know very hard it's it's very very depressing it's sad but it's part of our lives and we have our responsibility so in a way you know when you said Barry yes is God remember it's Israelis and and us who who you know do the commemorations for the Holocaust we say Nizkor, we shall remember it's our obligation to remember and and so the Yisker service, at the end of Pesach is also the Nizkor service and leads into the Nizkor for Yom HaShoah and the Nizkor for Yom, Yom HaZikaron as well. Uh, and and that, that ought to, um, you know, be part of the the shaping of our ideas uh, at this time. Reaction. We, um, we, you know, we're, we're recording this on, on a week uh, for the end of Pesach. And, and we, you know, of course, we're, we're, we're we're joyful during this time, remembering also, but we're we're looking at uh, next week's parsha as well, parsha Shemini. So we don't want to be we don't want to be too depressed on in our parsha show today. Oh, we can't be too depressed. So let's just talk about the to the, the untimely shocking death of parsha Shemini. 
Yes, the poor, the poor children of Aharon, Nadav and Aviud, who, who, I mean, that's the main, the main focal point of Parshat Shmini, that they bring a strange fire, uh, and, um, and they get zapped for that. And very, very difficult to understand this. Uh, we, we've tried in the past to, to examine this story as, well, they, they broke the rule. You don't break the rule in, in the sacred precincts. It's like going into the nuclear, you know, core with uh, the wrong kind of you know equipment, and and it the, the ethics of it is irrelevant. Whether they deserve it or is it's a it's a great terrible human tragedy, um, and we we stop at um, the reaction, of course, uh, in in um, the story is told in chapter ten of the book of Ayikra. Adonai. A fire comes out from God. So this, the powerful fire of God consumes them. And they die. They are incinerated. And Moses says to Aaron, This is what God said. I need to be sanctified in the sacred area. And I need to be honored in this. Aaron and Aaron is silent. And of course, Moses is concerned about the fact that the ritual was just defiled. This is the ritual of consecrating the sanctuary. And of course, a terrible, terrible, tragic event happens. And Moses is so focused on having this happen properly. And he he um, rails against Aaron for this. Aaron is silent. And Aaron becomes a kind of iconic phrase for all of us to say, what do you, you know, how do you react and respond in the face of horrible tragedy? Um, and and I'm wondering if you could pick up on on any of that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you, Barry, because... Thank you. Um, so hey, I, would begin, now. I would begin with Ramban's comment, who understands Vaidoma Haron that Aaron became silent, that, in other words, his initial reaction was an outpouring of great grief, losing not one but two sons, the two older of the, of the four sons, and finally he settles down and is able to become silent. Some of the rabbis suggest that Aaron is acquiescent, that he accepts the divine fate, and I, I think that is a little bit troubling and perhaps even glib, because there's really not enough here to be so sure that Aaron's response is one of acquiescence. We've all been in the presence of the dead and the presence of mourners, and often the initial reaction is one of shock, and the grief often comes later. And it's not acquiescence. You know, I'm reminded that when we do the rending of the garment or the ribbon, and we say uh, the phrase Baruch Dayan Ha'emet, we praise God as a true judge. I remember thinking many years ago that the reason why we have the mourners say that, even though very few mourners I know, nor necessarily me when I was in the position of a mourner, actually believe it at that time, but you have to say it then so that you'll actually be able to mean it sometime later in your life. That if you can't give voice to it at the worst or lowest moment of your life, then you might never be able to say it again. And we kind of force the mourners to say that, and they have to say it in order to give them something to hold on to for a later time. Um, no, go ahead. 
One last thought that occurred to me while you were talking is that, you know, I think when we, we talked about Kitisa and the Golden Calf, Jeremy suggested that uh, the deaths of Nadav and Avihu were in some way a punishment for the Golden Calf. And I have a dim recollection of talking about whether or not the the Golden Calf was a necessary episode. Was there something about the Israelite people that caused them to sin greatly at their greatest moment? And, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was looking over the Parsha prior to our conversation is that we often isolate the story of Nadav and Avihu as if it's the beginning of the chapter. It is the beginning of chapter 10, but it actually is the culmination of the consecration service, right? Everything is going along very well. All the sacrifices are made. People are being atoned for. The priest is for the people. The people are atoning for themselves. And then suddenly there's a great catastrophe. And it makes one wonder if this also may be something that is a necessary part of our human experience, that we really cannot configure our lives without deep tragedy marring it in some way. We're, we're all going to be affected by by that, and by by loss, and by suffering, and by and even by tragedy. God, you know, God forbid. Um, can I just? I, I want to just go back to what a thing that you said because it 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 kind of lit a light for me, which is that that you're saying that the Baruch Dayana met the the which is the prayer of acceptance. Basically, I accept the divine decree, and the person who says it at the point. You know, may not necessarily understand what they're saying, and and if they do understand, they may not necessarily be in the moment of acceptance. But what you're saying is that they're saying that blessing for the possibility that that moment may in fact come. I think that that's that's yeah. something that, and I make them say it in both Hebrew and English so that they can understand at least the words at the I, time. I'm gonna, that that's something that. Uh, that, that I think it's going to mean a lot. It means a lot to, to hear that, and I think it's going to mean a lot to a lot of people. That's intense. It calls to mind, by the way, the you know the end of the book of Job, or near the end, where you know Job. We often we say this this crazy thing, but as the patience of Job, Job has no patience. Job has Job, Job at the beginning of the book. You know, says I'm going to hang in there, and then that lasts literally two chapters, and then the. <laughs> 38, 39, 40 chapters in the book, he's he's angry. He's angry at the, the unjust suffering. He will not relent and say that I guess I must have deserved his friends, his his um three you know, friends comforter. comforter. They come and say, Well, you, you probably did something to deserve this, and and the justice of the world is, you know, is will be borne out that that bad people get punished. You must have done something. And he says no. And then ultimately, God shows up and says, in, in a storm wind, shows up and says, like, do you tell the dawn to rise? Did you teach the eagle to fly? Did you, you know, where were you when I set the constellations in the sky? Are you, are you in control of the storehouse of the snow and the rain? Uh, you are immortal, and, and this storm wind is just far beyond you. And no, there are things that happen that you cannot understand, cosmic things that happen that you cannot understand. And I, and I think that the tone, I would, I would say, I would tilt towards the, uh, the Aaron tone as being something more like that. When, when Job finally hears that from God out of the whirlwind, says, 
you know, I, I, I hereby fall silent. Um, I spoke what I was beyond me and, and I will just stand next to the whirlwind and be silent. And, and I think that, you know, it's not, it's not going to be satisfying for everybody. People who want uh, theodicy, who want, who want an explanation for why there is unjust suffering. It's not, but it does, I think, teach you how to, res it's not an explanation, but I think it teaches you how to respond or potentially teaches you how to respond to what you cannot understand. And and I am inclined to think that that's where Aharon goes, um, th that he does go to some place of, and because this is taken as a, the story is an illustration of mystery, uh, we the Midrash has developed a, a series of explanations about the wrong things that that Nadav and Avihu did, but actually some of the, some of the Midrash is actually kind of positive towards them, uh, or at least ambivalent, and and doesn't think that they were ill intentioned. One wonderful phrase in the Midrash is Hosif Ahava Alahava. They wanted to just add more love to love. They were just caught up in the enthusiasm, and maybe they're not allowed to do that, but. It's because they got so close. They weren't. They weren't being punished. They just got too close to the fire, and God got zapped because of the you know maybe ecstatic nature of the spirituality or something like that. And and, I, and so because the story is mysterious, I'm inclined to read Aaron's response as relating to the mystery as well, and the silence as relating to uh, the mystery. I just want to come back to Job for a second, and I think that. At the very end, what Job gets is the visitation, the presence of God. So he could put aside the need for an explanation because he understands that God is there for him. Would that our mourners and those of us who are mourning would sense God's presence? That would obviate in some way the need for an explanation. But I think in our world today, very few of us much of the time, feel that sense of God's presence so powerfully that we could say that a rational explanation is now unnecessary. Yeah, I, I'm going to amplify what you said. I remember hearing the this um, Rabbi Harlan Wexler. Uh, he 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 taught this uh, uh, passage and said, you know, there's nothing really new in what Job, what God says to Job. It's the, it's the fact that God shows up. And and that that has made a, a real strong impression on on people reading the the text that that there's a relational component to this and that by God showing up means that it doesn't that that I am with you at least I am with you in this in this moment um, and and here you know allow me to be just a little critical of Moses in that. When Moses is so focused on the ritual and not focused on on his brother's tragedy, he he really is not there for for Aaron, um, and and the relationship is is dented by this, is damaged by this. Um, we you know we have the luxury of being a little critical uh, of of Moses here uh, and saying that you know there there is some zeal here in in the performance of the ritual according to its. Um, it's 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 writ um but there is a human dimension to all ritual there's a human dimension to to you know the the people who who function um and this is a moment of profound loss where something else needed to be there and and the vayidoma haron the aaron was silent you know is often taken as you know this is how we need to respond to 
the the great unanswerable questions of suffering in life, and and uh, I'm not I'm not really sure that that um, I would go there, go in that vein. I would say, you know, we we obviously have no answers, but um, sometimes silence, you know, to say I'm not going to say anything, it's not it, silence is not what it's called for. It's it's the your body, your presence of your the arm. presence is what the it's presence. Called. Right. And you sometimes your presence is is just you know in 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 the nonverbal way that a person speaks with their body uh, in an embrace and 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 often it's just you know I I need to cry with you I need to be with you I need to share that emotional space with you in a way that that can't be evoked and can't be articulated. We can certainly, you know, do our best to articulate the inarticulatable, you know, when we're removed from it. But when we're in it, you know, uh, we we need to be in it, and that that's what this is about. That's, that's the uh, the old joke, or not joke, but clever clever saying about pastoral counseling: don't just say something, sit there. <laughs> um, and and I think that's I think that's true. But you know, I, I want to just I want to agree with you about the Torah's critical assessment of Moshe's reaction, but I want to put a small, a, a very a very slightly different uh, direction, a very slightly different uh, asterisk on it, which is that, you know, you, you pointed out that Moshe is very focused on the ritual and doesn't appreciate Aaron. Aaron actually teaches Moshe something about the ritual because the chatat offering, chatat works, the, the purification offering works when the kohanim eat the animal. That's somehow part. I mean, you know, whatever that seems to us now, that's somehow part of the um, the, the ritual magic. And Moshe, uh, chapter ten, verse sixteen, ve'et seir chatat darosh darash Moshe. Most of what happened to the the, the goat of the of the purification offering, ve'hine sarah. It got burned up and not eaten. And Moses gets angry. And Moses gets angry at Itamar and and, and Elazar, the, the surviving brothers. And he says to them, "Why didn't you eat the sin offering in the holy place? He, because that's what you're supposed to do." This is this very sacred uh, item, sacred food. You're supposed to eat it. You were supposed to eat it to to alleviate the sin of the of the community. to atone for them. And now and the blood was not brought inside. Uh, you should you should you should have eaten this like I told you. And then Aaron says to him, you know, very vividly, everything's happened to me. They brought the sin offering. They did what they were supposed to do. Um, uh, and then what happened is what happened. And if I had gone ahead or my sons had gone ahead and eaten the offering, would that have been satisfying in the eyes of God? Vaishma Moshe, and Moses understands that. Vaitav Beinav, and he accepts that that's right. Aaron is saying, not only is Moshe focused on the on the ritual as opposed to the human, Moshe is saying, 
it doesn't matter about the human. The ritual must be done in its precision. And Aaron is saying, I, let me teach you something about the nature of ritual. Ritual is not the action. Ritual is the person doing the action. And it would not have been pleasing to God if a person in mourning had eaten this because the emotion, the spiritual part, the feeling part, the kavanah part, just wouldn't have been there. Like, you know, later on in Deuteronomy, which is another uh, well, uh, another setting altogether, uh, when you bring the 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 vidui maaser, you all, the the person brings all of their 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 uh, tithes and says, "Lo achalti beoni." I didn't eat it while in mourning. It seems to me like the same thing is going on here. Moses doesn't seem to know that mourners cannot take part in rituals, and Aaron has to tell him it's not just that you're thinking about the wrong thing; it's that you don't even know what you're talking about. Because mourners don't have the heart to engage in the spiritual part of this. And so, and Moses says, ah, you know, actually, you're right. It's worth highlighting a great irony in the way that you present this, because we often identify the priest as the person concerned primarily with ritual and the prophet concerned primarily with people. And here is the way you explain it so beautifully, Jeremy. Aaron is concerned with the people. And Moses, the prophet, is concerned with the ritual, and that balance cannot cannot stand. But I, I want to add one other thing, if I might, that in the book of Numbers, in the episode of the rock, where Moses and Aaron um, misspeak to the rock, shall we say, Aaron, Moses is taken to task there for mourning too much for his sister Miriam and neglecting the people. So Moses you know, often can't win no matter what he does. When he's concerned with the people, he should have been concerned with the ritual. When he's concerned with the ritual, he should have been concerned with the people. You know, what do you want from us? Okay. Well, we are concerned with the ritual of how we're going to conclude our partial talk. <laughs> but also to say to people, have a wonderful, wonderful end of the Antiv, seventh day, day, beautiful seventh day, the, the splitting of the sea and, and lots and lots of things to talk about there. But we didn't do that. Instead, we focused on the more uplifting part, Yisker, and national memory, <laughs> and the death of Nadav and Avihu coming And Yom HaShoah. We just sprinkled Yom the Yom HaShoah for the good of and it. And that's why you can always count on us to be uplifting and to give you meaning. We want to wish you a beautiful Yantiv, end of Yantiv. Hope it was a beautiful, beautiful holiday and a good Shabbos. And we will see you next week on the next edition of Parshatah.